Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. It's Wednesday, the 14th of June, as we record. A day early this week, due to logistical reasons we won't trouble you with. But whatever the day, there's no doubting the big story of the past few days, the continued rise in UK interest rate expectations and the consequences that will likely have for all parts of the economy. The backdrop to this, of course, is strong labour market data this week, following on from persistent inflation figures last month. That has sent gilt yields beyond mini-budget levels and market expectations at the time of recording are for base rates to peak as high as, well, almost 6% now. So today we kick things off by talking about house builders and the housing market, uh, Crest Nicholson and Bellway in particular. Then we are going to look at a selection of different financial services small caps, see how they are coping with the rising rate environment. And we'll conclude with our cover story this week, which is on a completely different topic, but an important one nonetheless, how to find the cheapest passive funds for your portfolio. Joining me to discuss all this are Deputy Companies Editor Julian Hoffman. Hello there. Nice to see you again. Our property writer, Mitchell Labiak. Hi, Mitch. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. And Funds Editor, Dave Baxter. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dan. So we'll begin with House Builders. We will get into the rapidly dimming outlook shortly, but uh, Cress Nicholson, Mitch, half-year results out last week. What was the what was the tenor of those in your view? Um, yeah, the, the tenor of those is uh, I, I don't know. I, I suppose we could call it more bad news because this was a this was a company that we already had on a sell. Um, I suppose what investors likely found disappointing. Um, so shares fell nine percent on the on the morning the results came out. Um, but what investors likely found disappointing was the the underlying sort of um, pre tax profit picture. So when you sort of strip away um, cladding costs, the profit pre tax profits fell by over half, and that was largely driven by the sort of the macro environment. And the the company said as much, and it said we started the first half um, amidst the worst economic uncertainty arising from the September 2020 mini budget, and then they said rapidly falling consumer confidence and rising interest rates immediately translated into a softer demand in the housing market. Now the problem I think with that line is that you could argue things are now worse we've now got you know guilt yields around the same sort of levels that they were around the mini budget they might even be higher and the expectation for peak interest rates is is most definitely higher so uh they were you know they're talking about how bad the situation was following the mini budget but um it's it's not improved and if anything it's now it's now worse so it's hard to see the macro picture getting any better and therefore it's hard to see how the next set of results will sort of improve on this on this um uh slump in in pre-tax profits so that's the that's the sort of broad outline there are sort of nuggets of good news in there but i'll um um we can sort of get into that as as we go yeah to an extent i mean you know the this is affecting all house builders and we'll we'll, we'll come on to Chris nicholson's particular problems perhaps but the timing of these results weren't great either in that both in terms of its six month period began right at the start of this uh you know post mini budget spike in gilt yields and its reporting date 
was, albeit it was last week, but, you know, it is, as you say, right at the time when guilt yields are spiking again. So really, you know, disappointing figures in the interim. It did say as well, uh, I think the chief exec said, or they said in their outlook that, you know, if interest rates continue to rise and remain elevated for a sustained period, this will undoubtedly start to impact demand and confidence again, which is clearly what everyone now expects to happen as well. So they're being penalised for that as well. Uh, there, there are some other you know aspects of the business that may potentially be concerning as well that I think you sort of highlighted uh, previously, you, you know, when we've written about them, when we've put them on a sale. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a few things going on. I mean, I suppose the... There's, you know, there's there's the uh, help to buy picture, or rather mm. the lack of it. So um, help to the company. We actually asked all of the major house builders in in uh, January how much of their sales were dependent on help to buy. Chris Nicholson was the one was them and Barclay declined to comment um, on how much their sales were dependent on help to buy. Now you can take from that what you will, but. The other house builders, for the other house builders, it was around a fifth. And it is notable that Chris Nicholson has been saying in its results that uh, we, they, they, they're essentially asking for a sort of um, some, a return of some version of help to buy. Help for first time buyers is, is what they're referring to it as. So I think that speaks as well to how, even if they've not given a figure on, on you know, how much the loss of help to buy has impacted their sales. Uh, that speaks to sort of how much they are uh, dependent on it. And that was the sort of picture we outlined last time and sort of um, nothing, nothing's really sort of um, changed on that front. The help to buy doesn't, it doesn't look like it's it's coming back, at least not in the short term. And if it is, and if it is to come back, then, well, I mean, it's it's a gamble sort of uh, banking on uh, the return of a government policy to help um, lift your lift your profits so mm. yeah that's that's the kind of there yeah, that's the state of play at the moment that was the state of play then and that's the uh that's the state of play now i suppose yeah i think you know the clearly they're also dealing with higher costs which are you know unable to be offset by higher volumes given the general uh, moribund nature of the housing market you know even at this period where we we saw mortgage rates fall following the mini, mini budget notwithstanding what's happening in the past couple of weeks you know, transactions at very low levels, so it's very hard to offset rising costs when you can't point to more transactions, can you? I mean, the the help to buy point is interesting. You know, we are coming up to an election year next year, so I suppose there's a there's a uh, vestige of hope there for the house builders, and to an extent, I mean, even today, as I say, Wednesday fourteenth, we are starting to see, or I've started to see this morning, various calls for intervention on the mortgage market. I mean, previously, I thought you know interest rates wouldn't necessarily go as high as you know, five, six percent because the Bank of England wouldn't want to to hurt the housing market. Now it seems like we might be in a situation where it's like, well, they're going to raise rates to that level and then we'll get some government intervention on the mortgage market. But, you know, this is a idle speculation still at this stage. Uh what about um what about Bellway, which is not full figures, not interim figures, but it did have a trading update uh, out the other day. Uh, is it a similar story there? Any points of distinction in that release? Yeah, it's it's a hard one to judge. Bellway, um, they because they didn't really um, uh, say anything different, but the market still reacted to it quite negatively. Um, I think the reason for this was was largely because they they doubled down on some quite uh, downbeat predictions. So they they essentially said that they expected volumes to be down and they expected average selling price to be down now their their results 
likely won't come out to the autumn. So there's still potential for things to change. But um, I think what was clear from the sort of the, the market reaction was that um, investors were perhaps hoping for some better news and, and Bellway just said, no, the situation is still, uh, you know, we, we, re we reiterate our, you know, sort of fall in performance. Um, and, and yeah, I think, you know, the, the market reacted accordingly. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, on, on a comparison basis, they were, they were the most dependent on help to buy. So you can kind of look at Bellway as the canary in the, in the coal mine when it comes to how is the removal of that scheme um, uh, affected house builders. I think 20, when we asked them, 22% of their sales were dependent on help to buy. So they're going to have to find a way to sort of make up for that in a period of sort of rising interest rates and uh, rising costs then sort of eating into the margins as well. So yeah, it's it's difficult for both the house builders at, at the moment. Um, so yeah, we, we will, I think Bellway perhaps benefit from the fact, you know, to, to give Cressnickson credit, Cressnickson went first with its set of results and we're expecting the other house builders to come out afterwards. So it could well be that we look back on it and actually Chris Nixon's results in the round were not as bad, but, um, but yeah, certainly at the moment it's, it's, um, it's, it's not looking uh, fantastic for them. Um, yeah. yeah. We should uh, as well talk about valuation a little bit to conclude because, yeah. you know, a lot of this, a lot of bad news is baked into to some of these prices. You know, when you look at discounts to NAVs of, you know, upwards of 25%, uh, and Chris Nicholson, I suppose, in, in fairness, also did uh, maintain the dividend. There was suggestions that it might not do so. So it is yielding you know, upwards of 7% too. But the flip side, I suppose, is even with that potential value opportunity, when the, the news flow is bad and it seems like it's going to be quite bad for a while, albeit who knows how mortgage market interventions might, uh, might play out, it's quite difficult to create a narrative of positivity around the companies, around the sector at the moment. Yeah, it's, I think it's a difficult one. I mean, it's your, your valuation point is interesting because the, the house builders remain um, cheap, certainly on a price to earnings ratio. Crest Nicholson is, is price to earnings ratio when we calculated it for its results last week was seven, which is um, low. And um, what I would say about Crest Nicholson is that there, you know, other house builders are available. You know, we, um, we put Vistry as a buy. Now, admittedly, Vistry hasn't posted its results yet, so and isn't likely to post its results till uh, next set of results till September. But they, when they posted in March, they were looking, you know, pretty healthy. We we rated them as a buy, um, and they have a price earnings ratio of, of nine. I think uh, that's something to perhaps bear in mind. So you know, when yes, you might sort of look at. Chris Nixon, you might look at that dividend yield, for example, um, and say that there's some opportunity there. But once again, uh, Vistry has a has a, uh, a similar, if not higher, dividend yield, um, and it's it's performing better uh, for for that dividend yield. So it's worth considering that. You know, it's it's very easy to sort of look for opportunity within Chris Nicholson, but um, there are there are other house builders there, um, and. It doesn't look like it's uh, it's 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 going to be the the leader of the pack at any rate. Mm. Well, let's turn to some other companies now because you know these kind of reverberations fan out across the sectors. 
And Julian, uh, you're going to talk to us now a little bit about a few uh, small cap financial services companies, all very different beasts and all dealing with the situation uh, in different ways. I'm talking here about three companies that reported in recent days or recent weeks, CMC Markets, Tatton Asset Management and Ramsden's. Let's start with CMC. Yes, that's right. Uh, the um, uh, CMC fundamentally uh, a trading platform, I think you would say, but um, has been pushing in recent years into sort of offering institutions and other companies kind of broking services. It's a it's a kind of hybrid a hybrid monster, as it were. But uh, yeah, interest rates have had an interesting effect on businesses with that sort of model. It, it's a very capital light business. So whenever times are good, when lots of people are trading and there's plenty of volatility in the market, uh, it earns a lot of cash very quickly. So it converts cash um, from sales uh, very rapidly and uh, efficiently. But the problem it has at the moment is that there is no real volatility. I mean, as soon as interest rates go up, the the the, the action sort of shifts towards the bond market, which is a much more kind of specialised uh, sort of trading, whereas most people will be uh, into their equities in one form or another if you're interested in, in that sort of thing. But uh, And it also means that people will sit on cash. So, you, you know, if you can get a better rate at 5.5% from... From Barclays or something, then that's where you put your money. You don't put it onto a platform. Then, and there is a, a sense that a lot of the growth in trading platforms, uh, and there are dozens and dozens out there now, um, is down to the fact that people weren't getting, uh, you know, decent income off their their cash, and rather than let it sit in in a bank eroding, they were putting it into into trading platforms. And uh, that, that sort of first pullback of uh, consumers or at least equity traders is, is was notable in CMC's results. So they lost something like 11 or 12 percent of their active users, uh, although they did make up for it uh, to a certain extent with their existing uh, more professional traders uh, keeping uh, keeping higher value trades in play. But yes, it was an interesting uh, case study in, in in how interest rates work and how that can affect companies in quite uh, different ways. Uh, and also, the results weren't helped really by the fact that they're still investing heavily in the business uh, in terms of new products. Uh, and I, I'm not sure exactly what those products are. I, I did quote here that they've they've been spending money on a multi-asset interface across its core trading business. Uh, so I'm assuming that means that they are doing better ways to trade. Um, but uh, those plans are, are probably a year where, you know, the reason the market didn't particularly like the results is that the plans previously were going to yield results in 2024. And effectively, they've put that back a year. So, uh, you know, they're looking at another year of high capital spending, which is why the, the shares have suffered quite um, a lot over the last uh, quarter or so but yes so uh, yeah i mean it's a, it's an odd it's it's one of those businesses it's 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 totally dependent really on on outside events for for many for much of its performance those, those multi-asset products might speak to what you were saying as well about the need to diversify across asset classes perhaps as well not just equities i mean th- these figures were for the year to 31st of march and obviously yeah. uh you know that that period was you know pretty tough for equity markets we should probably note that you know in fairness the the S&P is a uh, is back in a bull market now and and it's been an unusual year to an extent in that, that there has been a lack of volatility and and markets certainly in the US have you know 
progressed serenely upwards without having too many blowaway days. They've just uh, continued rising. So you would think that would attract perhaps some of those customers back to the market in the coming months. I saw the stats for this the other day that a lot of the US market rise is, is concentrated in six individual companies mm. in terms of shares. And uh, that isn't creating the conditions where you can you can trade that up or you know you can you can make a turn on that sort of very concentrated very serene as you put it upward movement i mean you know traders dip in and out in a day and uh, there just hasn't been enough days where for cmc and others um, where that's been the case yeah that's a fair point from mm. from the point of view of the companies themselves yeah that certainly no volatility and certainly concentrated in a small group albeit a group of companies that a lot of people do like to own, but but yes. Well, let, let's turn to a different part of uh, the investment management market now, Tatton Asset Management, which uh, is a business that has done very well in recent years, making inroads uh, into its particular market, which is providing outsourced investment management for financial advisors who in turn provide investment services for their clients. And you know, latest figures suggest that trend has continued. Yes, the, 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 the last results were very good. It, it, the company basically has a massive stable of in the, um, independent financial advisors who, as they, their kind of specialism suggests, they turn over the portfolios to uh, Tatton, who build these um, kind of off-the-peg model portfolios that uh, IFAs can use. So it basically takes out the admin and uh, I imagine the cost for the IFA of, of actually managing client portfolios. So it's, it, it's kind of turned over on a discretionary basis to Tatton. And uh, they have been doing really well. They're about the only asset manager in the last um, two quarters, at least, that's had relatively high positive inflows. So their asset, assets under management uh, are heading well towards 14 billion. And um, a good portion of that was organic growth. They did do... Uh, a kind of 50% acquisition uh, during the half. And uh, that added something like a billion of um, assets under interest, I think they call it, or assets under control. But uh, that was a, a notably good organic uh, performance. I mean, it just shows that you know, if you build the relationships with people, then you can you can earn the long-term business on the back of that. And yeah. uh, that's what Tatton seems to be quite good at doing. There was an interesting note of caution. They reckon that they have about 12% of the entire market is is in this sort of model portfolio um, platform. And uh, that's a 650 billion pound ISA market or 12% of that sort of market. But um, a lot of the bigger players have started to get involved. So there is a sense that although it's growing at 25% a year, uh, you could see a scenario a few years down the line where um, much larger players are offering similar portfolios alongside their massive um, marketing and financial resources. Mm. And uh, it is a sort of cautionary tale that, you know, the growth doesn't last forever. And, um, you know, it may not be the canary in the coal mine, but it's definitely interesting that the management pointed, that, pointed to that structural development so yeah there might be an element of caution in there if you if you think you're buying in at the moment because i mean the shares are rated 19 times which is right uh, at the top end of the the market at the moment uh, so you, yeah. you know you might want I mean, you might want to wait for a slightly better uh, a slightly better um in point 
Although, you know, Hatton itself is doing very, very well. Yeah. I think it just shows the, the benefit as well, you know, in, in difficult economic times of having a, a strong niche. And, you know, they are somewhat insulated from the general pattern with, with asset managers of, uh, of, you know, being reliant on markets for, for good inflows because they are tapping into this uh, IFA market that, you know, frankly already has a lot of client cash and is now increasingly looking to outsource that. Of course, from the client point of view, all it does to an extent, I mean, Tatten is quite cheap, but it does add an extra layer of fees in that, you know, you go to a financial advisor and nowadays, you know, just as often as not, they will be out, they won't be managing the money for you. They'll do the financial plan and then get someone else to manage it. In this case, Tat. Yeah, I mean, it's, they're often just a sort of nameplate on the door these days. I think that's the, yeah. <laughs> the way that the, uh, the industry has gone. But uh, I mean, it is a model that, that is for its time. And it's a question of how much longer that uh, that, that time will last, as it were. Mm. I mean, yeah, there are pressures on advisors or advisors having, you know, covered this area in the past. Say there are a lot of pressures on their time, whether it be regulation or whether it be, you know, dealing with, with clients and giving them proper financial planning that means they are outsourcing more and more that question is yeah as you say certainly big players are looking to tap into this market as well you know and provide their own model portfolios but Tatten does have that good reputation and importantly relatively cheap costs so potentially it can continue at the other end of uh, the market we're talking porn at, the, at this point aren't we I think we are we're talking porn broking that's it uh, yes Ramsden's which is a sign of the times, really, unfortunately, perhaps in many ways. But, you know, the business is doing very well, as you'd uh, perhaps expect. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic... I mean, this is a, um, a Simon Thompson special I, that uh, Simon picked up on this show when it was very cheap. And, I mean, comparatively speaking, it's still very cheap. But it's basically a retail pawnbroker uh, based seemingly around uh, the Midlands, um, towards the north of England. And uh, the company seems to be operating on astonishing margins. I was looking at it in the results in their gross margins are something like sixty percent, which I mean you would you would expect that from a, a kind of tech company or something glitzy with a large campus in California. But uh, it is actually um, based around the fact that uh, the demand for the business, um, the demand on the business has increased rapidly over the last eighteen months because of. Um, you know, the cost of living crisis, you know, pawnbroking is a is a, an age old way of earning of uh, getting ready cash uh, against the pledge of some sort of physical object, and and it's proving to be vastly prof- profitable. I mean, and uh, we seem to be in that cycle again. I remember this happening uh, in the aftermath of two thousand and nine. There was a similar uptick in uh, in sort of pawnbroking services. And it also it's also tied in with the value of uh, precious metals because they they trade in a lot of jewelry and gold, and uh, that's been firming up quite a lot as well this last year. So yeah, from 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 a kind of structural point of view, it's been been doing very well, and uh, they even seem to be uh, you know opening shops and uh, trading very well off off uh, new open retail, which uh, again is a, uh, an interesting an interesting state of the nation kind of uh, commentary, I think. Yeah. We're kind of talking around it here, I suppose, but it is quite de- depressing, really, isn't it, to see the success of this? Not from the uh, point of view of, you know, uh, the company's, you know, management or operations, but just the fact that these kind of companies are doing so well in the current time. But uh, but that's certainly the case, you know, I think, you know, you say forecasts, yeah. you say in the piece forecasts have been upgraded by um, Liberum for the fifth time in a year, which, yeah. which really shows you uh, the direction of travel and 
and it's certainly a good barometer of uh, where yep. things are, unfortunately, if, if nothing else. But uh, the single spiegel pledge is watches, interestingly, which um, mm. I think considering I, I've never seen anyone under the age of thirty wear a watch, so I don't know how <laughs> it kind of tells you what the the profile of the of the average customer is. But um, no, it's a, it's a it's an interesting business, as but as you say, a slightly sort of uh, has a sort of Dickensian undertone, which is a bit a bit depressing in that sense. Mm. Well, on the subject of saving money, let's turn to a slightly more cheery subject, which is our uh, cover story this week. And that is on passive funds, which clearly uh, are cheaper than active funds and offer pretty good value in the main to investors. But really what we've tried to do uh, with this piece is get to the very cheapest funds in the market. You know, when you're looking for a tracker of, say, the US or the UK market, they tend to be much of a muchness by definition. So really is important to find the lowest cost product available with some caveats that we'll get to in a minute. Uh, and particularly right now, you know, when returns are hard to come by in some markets, not the US admittedly, but you know, elsewhere, if you're getting a lower return year on year, those annual costs you pay really do matter. So for those who do want to go passive in certain markets, we have attempted to identify some of those cheap funds. Uh, Dave, Dave Baxter, uh, our funds editor uh, is with us to discuss this, albeit in slightly unusual terms, I should say, because I wrote the piece. Uh, but I can't really have a conversation myself, Dave, and obviously you are an expert <laughs> on this uh, subject too. So uh, let's start by maybe talking about some of these costs. You know, the headline costs, the ongoing charges figure is the thing that most people see when they look at a fund. But there are other uh, charges to watch out for as well, such as transaction costs, for example. Yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the, the big ones. Um, you know, people, I suppose a few years ago, people used to sort of dispute the existence or sort of significance of these costs. But, um, you know, transaction costs, which stem from when fund providers sort of buy and sell assets and some of the kind of things that pop up there, they can add up quite a bit. Um, and as you've kind of noted in the piece, um, you can even get situations where, you, you have a headline cost, which is um, especially low as you should expect with these funds, but then the transaction costs can actually be quite surprisingly high. Although, as you also know, it can kind of, transaction costs can sort of fluctuate. So when you do have a look at them, it is kind of a, a snapshot in time and in theory, it can be perhaps lower one year uh, than the other, but it, it definitely kind of adds up to that total cost of investing. Yeah. Yeah, these, you know, headline fees on some of these ultra cheap funds are as low as, you know, 0.05 or something. And, mm -hmm. and all the figures we talk about in this segment are going to be very low. So do bear that in mind. But keep in mind, you know, the effect of compounds interest, just as it can help investors when things are, you know, when markets are going up, it can also harm them in terms of their fees. So, you know, even small differences in costs do add up. And yeah, some of these transaction costs can be, you know, four times as high as the official charges figure albeit as you say dave yeah you know these are backwards looking they have to be because they're a measure of trading activity so they can vary year on year but it's something to keep an eye on and it's a good guide to you know at least compare them with peers with comparable kinds of funds to see you know who's spending more on trading this is you know the costs of you know dealing commissions but also you know bid offer spreads can be factored in there and, and stamp duty on uk shares as well things like that uh we we should say before we go any further that you know, all these costs are all well and good, but in many ways, the most important cost decision is the platform 
uh, on which you buy your funds, you know, that can have a big impact. And, and certainly those fees are bigger than for any individual fund. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really big consideration. We've discussed this in various formats before. And, uh, you know, those those costs can kind of add up. Uh, I, I think kind of something else worth mentioning, of course, is not just the fact that the um, platform costs will differ, but also the kind of vehicle you're invested in will affect how attractive a platform looks. Um, so I suppose Hargreaves is always a, a good example here. Um, sometimes comes under kind of scrutiny for fund costs, which look higher than those from the competition. Um, but what it charges on shares, so kind of you know ETFs in, in the case of passives, but also investment trusts, uh, there is a cap on that, which uh, perhaps you know in this context would make the ETFs look more interesting than your uh, kind of open-ended track funds. Um, but of course, there are you know other things to consider there. Yeah, that, that that mix is important as well, isn't it? For people who, you know, I mean, a lot of our listeners will obviously have uh, individual companies uh, and active funds as well. But for those who do have a few passive funds, you know, the options are either index funds or ETFs, and and charges on those can vary. Uh, can also vary, you know, on the same platform. You know, in terms of a platform will charge you X amount to to deal in funds and X amount to deal in shares, investment trusts and, and ETFs. Aside from the charging piece or maybe hand in hand with it, you know, you can see two funds with very low charges, both ostensibly tracking the, you know, say European equity market, but or the you know emerging markets or Asia Pacific index, something like that. But but the underlying index they track as well is is really important to keep an eye on because especially for some of these overseas regions, those can differ quite considerably in their makeup and therefore you'll get quite a different return profile from these funds. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think particularly, you know, you mentioned the piece you talk about Asia and that's always been a good example. One way you should sort of look closely at the kind of fund literature to see where it's actually invested because some kind of Asia trackers will, uh, you know, have a huge amount in, in China and be very influenced by what's going on there. But then you can get other funds, for example, uh, those with more of an emphasis on the, I suppose, Pacific element, uh, which will have big exposures to places such as Australia. Um, so that's going to have a huge effect on kind of, you know, what you're actually buying in your sector and, and regional allocations. Um, and it, it can also have an effect in areas like, you know, Europe and, and Japan. Um, you can sometimes see some big differences between the uh, the kind of indices that are available. But yeah, that's definitely something worth uh, worth watching. And I suppose more, yeah, relating to what you're buying beyond just the cost. Yeah, we, we have tried to, uh, in the piece, you know, account for a few different indices. But in short, it is a, a relatively straightforward guide to, you know, the lowest cost funds out there for a range of different regions. So do have a look at that. And if you are interested in this subject, uh, Dave is currently working on our annual Top 50 ETFs piece, which will be out next month as well. It's always a popular popular issue, so keep an eye out for that as well. Uh, we go into various things in, in this article. Uh, I mean, there are some other things which I'll allude to very mysteriously in relation to UK tracker funds. Uh, some of those costs are going up due to potential new regulation, which we discuss in the piece as well. But that is all we have time for today. So thank you very much to Dave, to Julian and to Mitch for joining me. And thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Markets show.